I wish I had more time on this one, but I'm going to give you what I got, and <clears throat> hopefully you'll, you'll bear with me as my throat goes up and down with this. Uh, I've, I've been thinking about the resurrection. Like Christmas and Thanksgiving, we are conditioned to take things for granted and go through things, and then kind of like the uh, I Love Lucy uh, show where Lucy's in the chocolate factory, and you know when those chocolate balls go on the conveyor belt and he tries it just kind of goes on and more is coming and more is coming and they fall off and you you just get so busy with all this stuff and it's so easy in our culture to get overwhelmed with all the things that are coming at us that we forget a couple of things that we take for granted things that we've heard all along and there's a couple of things in this passage as I think in John 17, we're going to go into the high priestly prayer, but thinking in particular about the resurrection. And I don't know if you caught this, and I'm going to underline it. In those verses, you know when Jesus said, I am the resurrection. What follows? And the life. And we're going to look at that idea of a resurrected life for the Christian, for many People try to live their lives as a Christian, but they don't live the Christian life. And the difference is two kingdoms away. They're so different. One's a social religion, one's a cultural religion, one's a civic religion, one's a moral religion. The other's an entirely different thing. It's a personal relationship. And so when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I, I am the life, and when Paul would get into that topic, he said, we know that this death that Jesus died and the resurrection and the cross and, and the ascension, all that is, 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 is wonderful, but there's a purpose to it. And the purpose is going to come as you see Pentecost unfold in time. But he says, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives... And sometimes you don't get that focus. We focus on the death, yeah. We focus on the, the cross, yes. and yes. But the life he lives is present tense. And that's why Peter would say, uh, we're, we're born again to a living hope. Not just a hope, but a living hope. And therefore, as we get into thinking about the resurrection is a means to an end. And as we get into this, <clears throat> into this message this morning, I'm thinking about these answers uh, that the priest Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, that when you hear this, the story in context, you think about what was on his mind and what is he thinking about. And we talked about this last week when we talked about when the historical Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, he is still alive. And for many people, that means he's alive until I die and I go to heaven. And in between time, the life that he lives really doesn't have a lot of relevance for a whole lot of people, especially in our world and our culture today. They don't see any connection except do not pass, go, do not collect $200 and don't go to jail. It's a get out of jail card free. If you, you know, it's fire insurance. But this idea of life <clears throat> from the resurrection starts with this hearing and obeying, responding and moving towards the one that God says, this is my son. Nobody else's 
going to have that title. And we know that he came for lots of things, to fulfill the law, to fulfill prophecy, to be the priesthood, which is one of the things we'll look at today, to be the mediator between God and man. We know that he's going to be the Messiah, the king, all of these things. But the idea, he is your life. That phrase, he is my life. So I want to summarize what the whole point today is this. Jesus wants us to share in the resurrection life so that we may participate in glory. The idea that the resurrection is not something out there, it's optional. It's an invitation to participate in a new new way of living your life. And therefore, to summarize in, a, in an elevator style the gospel, you can have new life in Christ. You can have new life in Christ. Repeat those seven words. You can have new life in Christ. And mean, what's that mean? New life in Christ. But Jesus wants to share with us as he's praying, as he's going to the, crucif- to, to the cross in the last week, there's something on his mind knowing that the resurrection is a means to another end. He's praying, and we'll look at this, but he wants... I want you to see where he wants us to share in his resurrection life so that we may participate in glory. Paul said it this way in Colossians 1.26, the mystery, it's a mystery, and the Christian life is a mystery sometimes, but what was hidden has now been manifested and revealed. It's no longer a mystery. The Messiah is here, and the past generations and the prophets and all those things that were written about now has come into fruition as the king has inaugurated the kingdom. It's brand new. And God is out to restore a redeemed humanity. It's not the same. He's not interested in the world. He's not interested in changing the world. He's not interested in changing the flesh. He's interested in killing that and introducing a whole new community of people that live by the Spirit and have the grace of Christ because they know the resurrected one. To whom God willed to make known, and here it is again, the riches of his glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is, three words, Christ in you. So the Christian is not just an ordinary guy with with an attached religion that he can fill out on the forms. What religion are you? The Christian is a container of the Holy Spirit. And there's something new. And so if you think about what Paul said in in Romans 8, uh, that what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? The idea that there's riches of glory just ready for you. But so often we're like the Beverly Hillbillies. Come listen to my story about a man named Jed, poor mountaineer. And so we're hillbillies living in a mansion, but we don't know all the, all the resources that he's got. And so I want to go into this thing. I want you to hear what... What our Redeemer, what our Redeemer has done for us. And imagine that if you were invited 
to stand in the very presence of God right now, what would be your body posture? What would be the look on your face? Christ would look at you, and how would you look at him? Because you're stepping into the very presence of God as we are this morning. And we do so with a sense of a consciousness of an awareness that we're not just doing a church program here. We're stepping into the very presence of God. And either you will feel comfortable and comforted, or you will withdraw and shrink away in shame and fear. The idea, if you sin three times a day, in 365 times a year, rounded off to 1,000. I'm 59 years old. 59 times 1,000 is 59,000 sins. 69, yeah, that's what he does. Sorry, I, I made a mistake. I couldn't get away. <clears throat> How would you feel standing before a holy God with 69,000 sins? I couldn't look up. I'd be terrified. I just knew, I, I would just know that if I were to, I couldn't, I couldn't move. I would be paralyzed, as you would be, for the shame would be too great. Now imagine if you had zero sins, zero sins, that you would approach the Father with no sin on your account. How, what would your body posture be like? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you'd just be free because all the weight of your guilt and your shame would be totally removed. And that's what this says. Christ died once for sins, once for all. And the sins that he died for were every sin that you would ever commit in your entire life, no matter what they were. Before, before uh, you were born... Jesus died for them all. And therefore, when he said, it is finished, that work on the cross <clears throat> would be applied to you. The just for the unjust, Jesus for me and for you, so that he might bring us to God. Now, if Jesus is going to bring us to God and say, you pay, you're going to be held accountable, oh man, we wouldn't want to go. But the idea that my friend Jesus, my Savior Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, died, was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. <clears throat> and so the word, the word of the scripture, the promise is, and this is the testimony, that Jesus would tell the Father at that point in time, Father, you said that if Jerry would believe on me, I am the resurrection and the life, and Jerry understood that, and I've given him my promise, and I've given him my life. You said he would be forgiven. <laughs> Jesus will say that about you. Jesus will say that about you. I died for her. I died for him. And therefore, he's mine. He's mine. The testimony is this. God responds that he has given us life in his eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has eternal life. But he who does not have the Son doesn't have the life. And therefore, he will never see the life. I've written these things to you 
who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know. Well, let's look at what he wants us to know. Understanding that God died for us and rose again, understanding that he wants us to live again, understanding he wants us to participate in the resurrection life. We say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, live life, but Christ, present tense, lives in me. Now that's a mystery, folks. To understand how Christ is actually living in your marriages, how Christ is living in your parenting, how Christ is living in your workplace, how Christ is living in and through you, that's a real mystery. If you haven't got confused by that by now, join the club. But the idea that the promise is this resurrected Christ now through the Holy Spirit comes to live and dwell in each one of us. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in this one, the Son of God, who loved me. Paul was convinced of that. And he gave himself for me. Paul was convinced of that. When Christ died, though, and we'll hear this when we get into Pentecost, his work wasn't over. The death on the cross was part of it. So what is Jesus doing now? Do you know what Christ is doing right now at this very moment, Sunday morning? Let me share a verse with you. It's an amazing verse. Stop and think about this in light of your life. Hebrews 7, 25 to 27. Therefore, Jesus, he is able to save forever those who draw near to him, near to God through him. And get the next part. Since he ever liveth, always lives to make intercession for them. This is the high priest at the right hand of God making intercession. He's praying for you even as we speak. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, and uh, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for their own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all. There it is again. Once for all, when he offered himself up. In the same way, notice what the Spirit of God does. In the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And sometimes when you hit those reality of pain points and real terror, you think, I don't know how to pray. The Spirit of God does. And he's praying for you and for your loved ones. He's got your back. He's got you covered. Jesus is praying. The Holy Spirit's praying. And, and therefore, understand that we have a high priest, the high priest, Jesus Christ, at the right hand of the Father, And when the son, the high priest, prays, what do you think the father does? He's not just being superfluous and saying words. He's really doing business with God. And the God, the father, answers the high priest. So I'm going to look at this part in John 17. John 17, put it in your mind, is you know this as the priestly prayer. John 17 is the priestly prayer. And therefore, 
as you come into this section, there's something here I want you to see about how God wants to wants us to participate. But I want you to stop and think for a minute. This is a prayer. It's the priestly prayer. And usually the priest would go into the temple, and nobody would go into the temple except the high priest once a year. But here the high priestly prayer is recorded for us by John. Now, how did John write these things? You ever think about that? How did he, was he eavesdropping? Was he, you know, how did, how did he know this? Well, we don't exactly know, but we know this, that John 14, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, five chapters are all in line with the Passover week. And after the Last Supper on Thursday, moving towards Golgotha, I think that's when Jesus realized and he was teaching and training his men to abide in me. Abide in my word. Ask whatever you word, but abide. Stay in my word, John 15. And then John 16, he says, the Holy Spirit, I'm going to send you a helper. He's going to help you. And then John 17, right follow. I think on the way to Golgotha, maybe in the garden, Jesus stopped. And whether he went off to the side or we don't know, or maybe he told John later, but it's almost like impromptu, but Jesus lifted his eyes and from the heart the mouth speaks. It just poured forth. On the way to the garden, I suspect that they heard Jesus pray over them. And what he prayed is what they remembered as they went into that week. He was, Jesus was not afraid to be transparent in public with prayer. And so he said, you know, he said, Father, I've glorified your name. And now he gets into the garden. And he says, he breaks this prayer into three sections. And one to five is a very intimate, very intimate section. Jesus is praying for himself. Second section, he's praying for the disciples. And the third section, he's praying for us. Did you know that? He's praying for us. His prayer for himself says, it, it's just a, it's an intimate prayer. This is never one that he said, this is the Lord's prayer. I want you to pray this way. This was not to be reproduced so as institutional prayer, but it was more than to be reproduced because... Um, it shows how Christ loved the Father. And so he says, he spoke these things. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. That the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all the flesh that you have given to him, so he may give eternal life. And there it is again. But you have this idea that God and the Father, Jesus and the Father are sharing glory. And he says, I'm here to live out your desires. I'm here to honor your name. And God says, I'm going to honor yours. There's a reciprocal relationship, and he'll do the same for you. You honor the Father, the Father will honor you. You glorify the Father, the Father will glorify you. 
Jesus knew that salvation would soon be accomplished on the cross, but that wasn't all. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again and again and again and again. Therefore, this was just the beginning. Grant that my home going, my death and all I'm going to go through, my suffering would be to your honor and glory. That's a very personal prayer. And in sickness, that's what you pray too. May I suffer well. May I suffer well to honor you in my pain. That's a different kind of prayer. But Jesus would go on to say, This is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you've given to me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Eternal life is not just going to heaven. Eternal life is participating in the very glory of the resurrection through a relationship with Christ. It's knowing him. It's participating. It's intimately involved. And so Jesus begins to say, Father, knowing you is life. Not knowing you is unlife or no life. And so notice what he says. I have manifested your name. I showed them. I explained them. And he says in John 1, 14, 1, 17, No man at any time has seen God, only the begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Explaining who God is, is the way to manifest the glory. They were yours, God, and you gave them to me. And they have kept the very word that I told them about you. There's the response of the disciples. Now they have come to know that everything that you have given to me, they have seen me live my life. They have come to know who I am. They have seen what you have done in my life through the work that I do. And they have come to acknowledge that he was the Messiah. It says, for the words which you gave me, I gave to them. I manifested them. And they received them. And they understood And the disciples would know that what the Lord was doing was preparing them to go back to the Father and yet to leave them on earth. And they did believe. So Jesus accomplished that. Well, how do you manifest? How do you show life that glory? You participate with the Father, you pray with the Son, and you pray with the Spirit, interceding, and you cooperate, but you're living out your life in the very presence of the Trinity, Christ in you. As you go into this passage, Jesus was talking about how his life with Christ and honoring God, and then he goes into 6 to 19, praying for the disciples. Notice what he prays. He says, I ask on their behalf, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Philip, James the less, Thaddeus. I ask on their behalf. I'm interceding for them. They won't ask this. I will. But I don't ask on behalf of those who don't know me. I'm not asking for the world. I'm asking for my people. 
and those who you gave to me, they are yours, and all things are mine, and all that's mine is yours. And I have been glorified in these 12 men. Now, notice just earlier, Jesus said, you were men of little faith. You're going to scatter. You're going to leave. You're going to, you're going to abandon me. Notice in this prayer, there's not one iota of condemnation for his people. No focus on their failures. No focus on their disappointment. He knows their weaknesses. He doesn't even bring it up. He says, Father, these are yours. And so he enlists the Father to participate with the Son that they might be one. Now this isn't kind of a, a denominational thing where, because there's no Jewish denomination, it's just you're in there or you're out. But the one, oneness is not organizational, it's in essence. It's this fellowship that my heart is with you. And in essence, those that Christ is praying for is that there'd be this intimacy, there'd be this oneness, that they would see that what Christ had with God would be the very oneness that they would have with the, he would have with the disciples. And while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and they were abiding in that name. So, Father, I guarded them like a shepherd. You guard them too. Nobody failed. I didn't fail to keep anybody. I guarded them all except for this one. I didn't fail Judas. He failed me. He was the son of perdition. But he goes on to pray, God, sanctify them in truth. Let them be solid. Sanctify them. Set them apart that they know the true God. And therefore, he says, I don't ask on behalf of these. It comes to us. Now notice this prayer. I ask for those who believe in me through their word that they all may be one, that every Christian would have the same solidarity with the Spirit, the Son, and the Father as Jesus had. That anybody who's a Christian who calls upon the name of the Lord God is interceding for them, that they would be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they would also be in us, so that the world would believe that you sent me. And here you come back to this theme. The glory, the glory, the glory that you've given to me, I have given to them. This is the life of glory to participate in somehow that that which is unglorious, that which is evil, corrupt, vile, fleshly, dark, would not be your experience. They would be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they would be perfected, completed, so that the world would know that you sent me and you love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that where they are, in Chesterland, wherever they go, whom you've given to me, be with me where I am, so that you see my glory, that they may see my glory, which you have given to me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Your righteous Father, although the world has not known them, known you, yet I have, 
and these have. Get that. These have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known. I have glorified your name. I will glorify it again. I will make it known again, so that the love with which you loved me would be in them. You have to participate in this. You can't be a passive Christian. And therefore, what we talked about at the conference yesterday was being faithful in the presence. That wherever we go as Christians, you have the presence of Christ in you, on you, behind you, ahead of you. You are guarded by the Holy Spirit, and you are a powerful person. Not because of you, but because of the resurrected Lord. The power of intercessory prayer, the power of intimate fellowship, the power of the fact that you've been invited to be faithful. And so David Fitch, the Christian and Missionary Alliance guy, came to speak to the American Baptist. And he said, these are the seven, seven ways that we're going to show we're our presence of Christ. You step into church, and the, and the Lord's table is one. We worship the Lord at the table. We talk about reconciliation. The fact that there's not going to be any conflict or unforgiveness. That's where glory is going to be manifested. When you proclaim the gospel, the good news, in a world that doesn't have good news, that's the power of God for salvation. Romans 1. The discipline of being with the least of these. You didn't go to the nursing homes. You didn't go to the prisons. When do we do that? When you do it to the least of these, you did it unto me. The discipline of giving, fivefold giving. I can't remember what those all five things were, but, but the idea of, that we're givers, we're not takers. We're servants. But the last one was kingdom prayer. And so he says, as we understand the invitation of this resurrection is into a life that's oriented into a, a mystery that's not just living a life as a Christian, it's living the Christian life living the resurrected life, being one with the Father, being one in prayer, knowing that God is praying for you, but knowing that you're one with a whole group of people that are called to be his people. The power of the resurrection and the resources of glory are yours. It's a mystery that we have to pursue because in the Christian life, it's a funny thing that once you find Christ, you have to keep seeking him because it's a constant participating, abiding, learning, and growing. Well, I didn't want you to miss that, that the resurrection is not just something we celebrate and go on. It's every day God is praying and lifting us up. I wanted to encourage you with that because we have a lot of battles. and We're not home yet. But he knows our weaknesses, and he's praying for us. He ever lives to pray for us. So does the Spirit. So do we. Let's close the word of prayer. Father, we do thank you that you are, you are our God and you are our King, you are our High Priest. And thank you that you carry us as a High Priest close to your heart. Father, thank you that you really do love us that way and that you've invited to share your glory. You've invited us to share your glory so that we might manifest your name to the world that doesn't know you. Father, would you help us draw near and live in your presence, for you are the resurrection and the life.
So would you give us more grace to die and to live? For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.